0: You know, as we've been going through this uh, text in Acts and been working through it for a while, really following Paul, his ministry's winding down. He's headed back to Jerusalem. He knows the end is coming. And what we saw last week was Him take seven young disciples to Troas. And we saw a picture of what a church worship should look like, principles that were displayed there. And uh, if you remember, uh, we we saw in the whole text that we looked at the first 12 verses last week, uh, some principles that kind of I shared that as I read that about what we see going on with Paul and these young guys. First of all, it, God shows his love for the church through Paul by encouraging uh, and guiding young disciples so that the the faith will continue. That was the first principle we looked at, that he he shows that he loves the church by continuing to pass it on to other people. Imagine if we were the last generation to love Jesus. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine what would take place in Jacksonville and in Florida and in the U.S. And I know... A lot of us look at what's going on in our country and we think not a lot of people love Jesus. And it's true. But still, there's a purifying, a salting influence. I see it, you know, I was talking to Ryan because I play video games with my my youngest son, Ryan. And I'll get on there with guys and the moment they know I'm a pastor or I love Jesus, it doesn't matter which, They clean their language up. Now, why is that? Because still, even though if they were playing with anybody else, they'd be cussing like sailors. I guess I could say Marines, too, but it doesn't matter. Uh, But they would be cussing. But there's a there's a salting influence of a purifying influence that goes, oh, this guy's on here. Maybe we need to watch our language. And they will even correct one another when somebody slips. Imagine if all that goes away. There are no Christians. There are no standards except for what we want to do. We don't care about God's standards anymore. And and so our country was founded on these principles. Even though people weren't believers, they, they believed in God's values. And so... God loves His church by continuing to encourage the faith on in younger people and commanding us through Paul and others, hey, go make disciples. Build into them. And so they'll find faithful people and do it. And we saw that to encourage and to help grow them, guide them. Second, we saw that He loves the church by engaging and gathering disciples together. In other words, most people today, unfortunately, I and mean, I was talking with Brad about this yesterday on the radio, a lot of people go to church and they never engage. Their minds listen to what the pastor's saying, they take in the information, but they never engage with the church. And when you don't engage with the church, you miss out on the reason we gather. We don't just gather to hear some guy stand up there and tell us what God has revealed to Him in the Scriptures. That's part of it. But if that's all you get, you're only getting a slice of the reason we come together and gather. We come together and gather as a body to encourage one another, to serve one another, to see Tim. I see Tim on Sunday. And we, I say, Tim, how's it going? How's your walk? How's things going with your wife? And we engage with each other. You know, that's the purpose of gathering to encourage each other, to get instruction, sure, but then to also celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is reminding them of what Jesus did, his death, burial, and resurrection, and their purpose in being here. And our purpose in being here is to be people that put God on display in our world, and we are ambassadors, we're messengers. And so that was one of the things we saw. When did they gather? They gathered on the first day of the week. And we talked, for for you guys who weren't here last week, the first day of the week for us is Monday. Why? Because our calendar is built around a work schedule in our culture. But for them, the first day of the week was Sunday. It was built about Jesus who was resurrected on Sunday and rest being in Him. So they started their week with that reminder that we are His. We come together to worship, to be reminded of our purpose and His power. And over the years, that's going away. I was talking with Brad and I said, man, when I was growing up, there was not another church gathering for the main gathering on Any day of the week except Sunday morning and Sunday night. I never saw Disney growing up because I had to be there Sunday night. I was mad about that then. I'm kind of glad now. All the other kids are watching Disney and I'm at the church with my folks because we were there on Sunday. It was our, that was, but even our mentality then was that was the seventh day. But there was a difference in the first day and the seventh day. And we talked about old creation, new creation. Old creation, God worked seven days and He rested on the seventh. And that was the pattern for the people. In the new creation, Jesus rested when? After He was resurrected. The work was done. And then the rest of the week took place. And so the early church always celebrated on the first day of the week. And I think we've lost some of that. We talked about that. And finally, we saw that we got to examine and give heed to God's messengers in His Word. When God brings people into our life to speak to us from His Word, explain His Word, apply His Word, we can't blow them off as just saying, well, that's just Jimmy talking to me. I mean, I, you know, and that's what we do. Right, Amos? I don't like what he's saying. And so I, I say, well, who does Amos think he is to come jump up in my grill like that? I mean, instead of seeing God speaking through Amos, or even on a Sunday when the pastor is teaching from God's Word, and I'm sitting there and I go, wow, I don't even, he, he's, got a, he's not a very good preacher. He's the guy you're sitting in front of on that Sunday, and if he's got the Bible open and he's explaining what the Bible says... The way he says it shouldn't impact you as much as what's said. But we've, we've actually grown to where that's the most important thing about what we do on a Sunday. The way they say it. If they're good, we give heed to it. If they're not, we, we don't. Jonathan Edwards, one of the most prolific influences on theology and our, our, our history as believers here in this country... <clears throat> used to read his sermons monotone because he did not want his personality to influence what people thought. He wanted God's word to be the primary driving force in their life. And when he preached a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people left claw marks in the side of the pews because it was so convicting and harrowing for them. So it's not necessarily about the style as much as the content. So we better be careful and pay heed to God's messengers, people that are representing the Most High God. By the way, we are those messengers to the people around us if we're His. We're His priests to our family. And you know what? Our children, when you talk to your children and you're telling them God's Word, you're teaching them from God's Word, explaining God's Word, applying God's Word... You need to let them know that God knows and sees everything they do apart from what you know or don't know. They're accountable to Him. You're a steward. You're just passing on the message. And if you're like me, you learn the hard way some things along the way that when you don't heed God's messenger, it doesn't go too well for you. It never did in the Bible. And it still doesn't to this day. So that was what we saw last week in that that text 1-12. through This week, we see Paul's sermon to the church when he calls the Ephesian elders. He leaves Troas and he goes on to Miletus. And when he's in Miletus, he sends somebody to bring the Ephesian elders. It's about 20-30 miles away. And so they go bring them there. So he sits these elders down and he teaches them and shares with them really their priorities now that he's going to be off the scene. It's almost like a handing off of the baton in a race. He's handing the baton to them and they're taking it. And as we look at this, we see a new generation of disciples. We see new leaders there because Paul had been there for how long in Ephesus? Remember? Three years. Three years. He was the guy for three years leading that area. And he he had called elders, but he really was the guy. Now he's gone. And these people will be the ones leading that church in Ephesus. And remember, Ephesus was one of the four major cities of the world at that time. You had Ephesus, Corinth, Alexandria, and Rome. And so we're talking about like leaving a bunch of young guys, even though they've been mentored for three years, in charge of the church of New York City or Chicago. So that would, be, that would be pretty overwhelming. And so as we look at this text today, verses 13 through 21, I want you to think about these things, that God calls us to remember His servant Paul and first of all, attain His desire, attain to His desire. In other words, we want want to be motivated by the things that motivated Paul. And we're going to look at that in the text. Second, and Paul leaves that message for him. Second, we want to appropriate his devotion. We want to be as devoted to our king as Paul was. Remember what I shared last week when I said what Paul says in Corinthians Imitate me as what? As I imitate Christ. So if Paul, listen, if anybody that you know is imitating Christ, you see things in their life that reflect Jesus and what He did, the way He lived, the things He said, you follow them. You don't follow them because you like them You follow them because they're imitating Christ. That's what Paul said. He didn't say imitate me because I'm a good guy. Imitate me because I have a good personality or I'm funny. He said imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so we want to attain His desire. We want to appropriate His devotion. And finally, we want to advance His declaration. What Paul said, we want to be saying the same thing. Our lives should be voicing the same gospel that Paul did. And you go, well, I don't, I don't, I don't talk to anybody. Well, you, you're going to stand before God one day and He's going to say, Bob, listen, I put you in front of this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy. And I gave you all this teaching about my gospel. And... We can't just say, well, I I was kind of shy or well, I didn't really think that was a thing to talk about. Every man in this room talks about things to people. You talk about your grandkids. You talk about your favorite sports team. You talk about your favorite hobby. And when you stand before God, He's going to say, I gave you a stewardship. And, And I'm telling you, not enough people are challenging and holding accountable God's people to do this kind of thing. But Paul did, and he tells these elders, This is a stewardship. This is a stewardship. And so, and he says, Look at me. Look at me. Look at what I did. Not because I'm a great guy, but because I have been a servant of the Most High God. I have been devoted to the Most High God and I have stewarded His message. And He did. And unfortunately, what's happened today is the message of the Gospel has been diluted and distorted. And so we're going to look at that because I think it's instructive to look at what Paul said the Gospel was, what he challenged these elders to do. So let's read the text in verses 13-19 through and we're going to come back and unpack this. In a way, hopefully, that will be very practical for you in your life. Because you know what, guys? the end of the day, if, if you get instructed from God's Word, and, and like Brad says a lot, it doesn't go through you and into your life, then you just wasted 45 minutes. <clears throat> really. And actually made it worse on yourself, because when you stand before God... <laughs> You're going to stand up there and he goes, hey, you remember when we taught you that? You know, me and Doug. Because, See guys, we're partners with God. As you teach people His Word, we're in a divine partnership where He works through us. And hopefully the Holy Spirit will weed out the Doug stuff and get to you the stuff that's really important that He wants you to hear. But He's got a message for each one of us here. Um, And so let's look at 20 starting in verse... um, 13. Join with me. If you need a Bible, I have one up here. And I have notebooks. All right. Verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem as possible on the day of Pentecost. Now, that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the very words of God. He set sail from Assos, but Paul walked from Troas to Assos. It was about 20 miles because guys, sometimes leaders just need to clear their head. Sometimes need, leaders need time to think. They need time alone. So Paul sent these young disciples because if the young disciples would have been with him, what would they have been doing, Brad? What's that? If the young disciples were with him, what would they have been doing? As, as, mm-hmm. as, if he had gone on the boat with them, would he have had time to think? Yeah, he'd have been teaching. They'd have been asking him and he's going to answer the questions. And so he says, you guys go ahead. I'm going to walk. Sometimes I have to just get out and walk, clear my head. And that's what he was doing. But here's what's interesting. You go through these names, Assos and Chios and Samos and uh, Middeline, Miletus. You know, we blow through those names and... It's interesting to me that Luke writes those names. Those are significant names. They're not significant to me and you because we don't have any association with them. But you know what? We know some famous people that grew up in those places that were from those places. You guys ever heard of a guy named Homer? Wrote the Iliad? One of the greatest literary poets of all time? They're still making movies today (laughs) uh, that are influenced by the Iliad and the Odyssey. And Homer was recognized as one of the greatest literary figures of that time. And that's where he was from. Does Luke say anything about Homer there? No. Um, Assos was the temple of Athena. Alexander built it. It was huge. Does Luke say anything about The temple of Athena? Doesn't even mention it. Samos? Any mathematicians in here? Anybody do good in math? No math? You ever heard of the Pythagorean theory? Pythagoras? You know where he's from? Samos. He was into math and, and, and metaphysics and that was his way to define the world. That was how he defined truth. Do you know who he was influenced by? A philosopher named Thales. Thali was from Miletus. Now Luke doesn't mention any of these people who were so great during this time because Luke is telling Theophilus about the one person that really counts and who is that? It's Jesus and His servant Paul here. So he didn't mention these people. I just find that fascinating. Luke passes right by literature, right by religion, right by the sciences and education, and right by the philosophy to tell about Jesus. Because that's what's important. Now, do we try to define truth by science and education today? By religion? Yeah, of course we do. But we shouldn't be says Paul wanted to be in Pentecost why? Uh, in Jerusalem by Pentecost. He wanted one last shot at his Jewish brothers. Because see, at Pentecost, they all had to come to Jerusalem. So Paul is like the, he's like the, he's like the, the Marines running into the fire. He wants to go in because he knows they're going to be there. He wants to get back there to be able to share the Gospel with them. Verse 17, it says, He summoned the elders from Ephesus. And he calls these leaders elders. Now, in verse 28 of this chapter, they're called pastors and overseers. But pastors is the generic term, and really, it describes their role. Pastors are shepherds of Christ's sheep. And they're called to tend, to feed, and to protect the flock. And we see that even in the way Paul addressed them. But you know what's interesting to me is one of the most influential Preachers in our culture right now, at least in a lot of people's eyes. Not in my eyes, but well, he's certainly influential. He influences a lot of people. I don't know it's for the best thing. He said that the Shepherd model is dead in America. And said instead we should adopt a CEO model. Let me ask you a question for you business guys in here. What drives the bottom line for a CEO? Cash, is that really the model we want to adopt for church leadership? I don't think so. I don't think so. What drives the bottom line for a shepherd? The flock. flock. He cares for his sheep. Do you know that shepherds to this day in Israel can identify... There's one guy that has 2,000 sheep over there. He can tell you every sheep's name by feeling the back of his head. He knows the sheep. He cares for the sheep. In fact, fathers over in the Middle East, if their sons don't love the sheep, they won't let them be shepherds. Unfortunately, we live in a time where leaders in our churches love themselves more than the sheep. They love love what they do. More than the sheep. Listen, it's nothing wrong with loving what you do. I love what I do, but I love you guys. Do you know when I'm away from you guys or when you're away, I miss you. I care about you. Jimmy, you're gone. I, I, I miss you. Amos, you're gone, I miss you. When I don't see you, Randy, my I, I'm like, man, I miss seeing Randy. Chuck, you know, my heart jumps. Lori can tell, she says, you love it when your guys call, don't you? I said, Yeah, I do. I love my guys. Pastors have to love the sheep. And Paul's letting people know. That's why he uses the terms he uses. And he calls these elders and and he calls them pastors later. And that's really what their role is. It's a pastor. So to say we need a CAO model, I I strongly, I couldn't disagree more with this very influential pastor. and He speaks to probably 5,000 times The number of people I get to influence. And that's sad to me because everybody buys into that. But verse 18, Paul tells him, He said, You know how I lived among you. How from the first time I came in, listen, I served. Paul says, I was consistent. You know, here's the thing about Paul Paul's success was not based on methodology. It was based on who he was. <laughs> it really was. There was no credibility gap between Paul's life and his message. Do we have a problem with that in our culture today? Do we have a credibility gap with people who like to teach, but we don't know anything about them? Right? I mean, like, you know, we when we... Go do things together like when we're around each other. That's why Paul says I taught you publicly in house to house and I'll talk about that in a minute. But this one thing, like Lori and I know this person who's a minister out in Texas. And they, they, we were talking to them about this whole issue and they said, well, God's called me to a public ministry. And I'm like... Okay, but what about the private ministry? And this person would never engage personally with people when they would come up with questions. They would slough them off. But boy, when they got up in the platform, they would talk from an authoritative standpoint about issues. And when people would want to challenge some things, they would, they would say, you know what? I, I, I can't talk to you right now. That's not real ministry. That's, that, that comes across as being about you. I, I'm not going to judge their heart. I'm just telling you the way it comes across. Paul wasn't like that. For us, for, as we look at this, as we attain his desire, what, what we should be seeking to do is to serve the Lord humbly like He did. That was his motivation. Now listen, can we change our attitude about that kind of stuff internally? I don't think we can. I think there's only one person that can change that, and it's God. So the way we ask Him is we go, God, can you change my attitude about this? And you spend time with Him and you knock on that door because that's the prayer. Remember He says, ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be open." That's the kind of prayer He's talking about. Not that your stocks are going to go through the roof. Not that that you can't ask Him that, but I'm just saying when He says knock and the door will be open, He's talking about asking for these kind of things that your attitude would be one of serving Him humbly. Is there anybody in here believes that if you ask the Lord to change your heart to make you want to serve Him more and to serve Him humbly that God's going to go, nah, I ain't going to do that. (laughs) Really? No. That's the prayer he wants to answer. And so Paul is telling them listen, he says in verse 18, he says, You know, you yourselves know how I lived from the whole time. He's not bragging, he's just saying, This was my motivation. I served the Lord with humility and tears. Guys, serving the Lord comes with humility and suffering, always. It always does. Paul serves without caring what other people think. Look at how many times he would—he did what God wanted him to do. He didn't worry about the public opinion polls. He didn't worry about the, the financial impact. He just went and did what God told him to do. He wasn't building a following for himself. He could have cared less if it was 2 or 50. He cared about pointing people to Jesus. And that's what he says look at what I did my attitude was one to serve well and and if you know if you look at first Thessalonians 2 he talks about that he talks about the suffering first Thessalonians 2 he says you know that our coming to you was not in vain even though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict Guys, we don't declare the Gospel of God when there ain't conflict. Paul was devoted. He was was devoted to his Master. And we need to ask God to also help us appropriate His devotion. Surrender to the Lord. Surrender to Him trustingly, saying, okay, God, I know my plan is this, but... Your plan is over here, and you're wanting me to do that, and it's hard, but I'm going to do it because I love you, because I trust you. Paul, Paul knew Jesus was his master, and he knew that if God wanted him to do this, that it would be futile and foolish to do this. And yet, how many times do we do that? How many times do we know what God wants us to do? Even though it may look foolish, why are you going to keep going in the synagogue, Paul? Every synagogue you go to, they kick you out of. Because that's what God wants him to do. And so he does it. And so, he tells us, in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but let to know you to know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul does this because his love for God inspires his love for people. His gratitude to God inspires his love for people. And so he's obedient to Him. We've got to ask Him. In the same way we can't ask Him, we can't just will a good attitude. You can't will devotion to God. you got to ask God, God... Give this to me. But notice what he says in verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything. In public, house to house. Paul didn't stop. He said, I taught you and I've lived it out. I taught you everything that was profitable. Not just publicly, but house to house where we can have dialogue. Jim, you could just say, you know, Paul, you said this, but... Where does it say in the Old Testament that Jesus is Messiah? I want to know. It's not just about a speech. It's about dialogue. It's about one-on-one. It's about getting, getting down in the bushes with people. And that's what he did. Paul was a bold steward of God's truth. Do you think God's truth rubs people the wrong way? You know, there's three sources of truth, really. There's human speculation, and that's basically, that's, that's man saying it's true because I said it's true. That's where we live right now in our culture. I can be a girl. I'm a girl today. You know what's funny, though? Is even the people that uh, say that have limits. Because if I say, you know what? I'm Chinese today. I don't have any Chinese blood in my family line, but I'm Chinese today. i got yellow skin, and I'm Chinese today. So they have limits. They would (laughs) laugh me out of the room if I told them I'm Chinese. But yet, when I say, you can't be a girl if you're a guy. You can't be a guy if you're a girl. But now our country is is even looking at codifying and in some places it has codified that that's protected by law of this country, which is absurd. (coughs) That's one source. The other source is institutions, the government, um, church. Yeah, the church can be an institution that defines truth outside of the Bible. Do we know churches that do that? Absolutely. There's a lot of churches that define truth, that go against God's word. They define the truth. Do you know, uh, and, and this may offend some people in here, but the Catholic church in a lot of places will say that Mary was without stain of original sin. There is no biblical context for that. None. In fact, it goes against what the Bible says. But you say that to some of my Catholic friends, and they get really upset because the church said it. You know, when they said it, when a papal bull came out thousand years after the Bible was completed, and they said the Pope has the authority to change it. But you know what Revelation says? If anybody adds anything to this... The curses of the, or subtracts the curses of this book comes upon them. So yes, the church can be an institution that tries to define truth too. There's one source for us for spiritual truth. Only one. As believers. And it's the Bible. It's God's Word. God says it, that's truth. Now listen, the Bible doesn't tell us how to bake cookies. It doesn't tell us how to walk a dog. It doesn't tell us how to do a lot of things. It's not designed for that. What the Bible is given to us as a gift for is to tell us the truth about how to relate to our Creator. And how He sent His Son to die on a cross for us so that we could be in a right relationship with Him. And that is the truth. And that's what Paul was a bold steward of. Because that truth rubbed the people that were, quote, God's people back then the wrong way. Because they didn't believe in a Savior who was a suffering Savior. They didn't believe in a Messiah that wasn't uh, anointed and going to kick Rome out of Jerusalem. And they certainly didn't think they needed redemption because God chose them. So Paul tells them, oh, I've taught you and I've lived it. All this profitable. And then in verse 21, he testified to Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Two elements of the salvation message. Two elements of the gospel. So when you go and give the gospel to people, as you share the gospel, there's two things that need to be a part of that. They have to repent of self-rule and self-righteousness. And, and the word repent in the Greek is the word metanoia, which means a 180. It's a change of mind about this direction, and I want to go this direction. And yet there are people in churches all across this country who say that if you preach repentance, you are adding works to salvation, and that's a lie. You're not. There are people who say you, there's no need to preach repentance, Really? And what we've created is easy believism, which says it's about a destination. It's not about a kingdom. What did Jesus say? The kingdom is what? Here among you. He's the king. Do you know what the word Messiah means? Most of us don't. We see Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is the word that me, it means anointed one. The King. The anointed King of God. The One who is coming. The Jews look forward to Him. And G, uh, Paul preached in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, we preach Christ, which is the Messiah crucified. 1 Corinthians 4 Uh, Verse 1, he says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. What was the mystery? The mystery was that God would send his son to die on a cross for both Jews and Greeks to be in right relationship with him. They didn't understand that. And repentance is the first part it's going this way in self rule and sin. And I turn from that. Well, does that mean I have to give up this if I follow Jesus? Well, if Jesus is your king and He wants you to, yes, it does mean that. Well, I don't know if I can do that. And there are people who say if you tell people that they need to do that, then you're adding works to salvation. What well, seems to me when Jesus told the rich young ruler, go sell everything, and he, he went away sad, he didn't want to repent. Because He looked to His money to be His security. And so, Jesus preached repentance in Luke 24-47. Jesus preached it. Over in 2 Peter 3-9, Peter preached repentance. In Acts 17, Paul preached repentance. In fact, in Luke 13, Jesus said He warned about not repenting. People were asking Him, Uh, if it was God's judgment on a group of people that died suddenly in an accident and other people that were slaughtered by Pilate? And he goes, listen, unless you repent, worse things are going to happen to you. So I don't know where these people think that repentance shouldn't be taught. It's, It's two sides of one coin. One side is repentance to His Lordship the other side of the coin is coming to faith in him that he can deliver you. He's Savior. So he's Savior and he's Lord. You can't reject his Lordship and receive his Saviorhood. You can't. It's impossible. It's two sides of one coin. But what's happened in our country is like a lot like the Jesuits. The Jesuits, when they went to China and they were going over there to preach the gospel to people, they looked at the Chinese and they go, man, this is going to be offensive to them. So they altered the gospel. They diluted the gospel and we don't have a right to do it. It's not our message. We are stewards. You know what the word steward means? It means someone who is faithful, who is trustworthy. A faithful, it's like if I was going somewhere and I say, Chuck, I want you to watch this for me while I'm gone and I give him something. He's stewarding what I gave him. We are stewards of the Gospel. And we are to steward his message. That's why to advance what Paul declared, we, we need to be good stewards. We need to know what Paul's message was. And it was repentance toward God. And we see it in the messages he preached. And, and repentance. Let me just finish on repentance with this. It involves the intellect, it involves the heart, and it involves our body. There is a knowing, there is a feeling, and there's a doing, and all three are impacted in repentance. I had a guy one time say, "Well, you know, uh, I, I I trusted Christ, but I don't feel anything." And I asked him, I said, let me ask you a question. If you were backing out of your driveway and you ran over your neighbor's child, I said, would you feel anything? Of course I would. So you're telling me you trusted Christ, you realized that your sin and your selfishness put the king of the universe, the son of God, on a cross naked to die for you, who was innocent. You killed an innocent man because of your selfishness and your self-ledness. You realize that. You realize even though you did it, He offers you forgiveness and you don't feel anything? I don't think you really get it. But see, that's what we've sold to people because in the 1800s, in an effort to mass produce Christians in the world, we did a lot of mass stuff and people would just walk down because Chuck's going down, I'm going down. Chuck did it, so I'm going to do it. I don't want to miss this boat. I want to go to heaven. And people don't really believe. They say they believe. Perry Bowers, who's a mentor of mine, said, you know what, Doug? Men do what they value. Not necessarily what they tell you they believe. They do what they value. If they value something... If you value what God has done, it's going to impact you. And if you realize that you've been going away from Christ, you've been going away from God and depending on Him and what He's done, the, the, repentance means it impacts your... You've got to know it, you feel it, and you do it. It's a response. Believing all Jesus said, all Jesus did and trusting Him. And that's where He talks about the other part faith in our Lord Jesus. It's not faith in what He did. It's faith in Him. We believe in Him, not just the facts about what He did. So, as we close our time, ask yourself this question, what, what motivates me every day to get out of the bed? What's my motivation? Is it money? Family? Um, job? Job? Something I want, I want, I want to prove? I want to feel good about myself? Or is it because I want to serve the God who redeemed me? I want to serve the God who sent His Son for me. This is not just a spiritual cliche to serve Him. He wants us to get up in the morning when we get out of bed and say, God, I'm Yours today. If You want me to go right, I'm going to go right. If You want me to go left, I'm going to go left because I'm Yours. You bought me and I'm Yours. So what motivates you? Paul says it was to serve the Lord. Second, how devoted are you to your king, to your master? How devoted? Will I only serve him to a point? I'll go this far, but man, if he wants me to step over that line, I don't know if I can do it. Paul went through beating after beating after beating. I don't think there's anybody in this room who's been beaten because they told people about Jesus. And yet, he continued. Why? It's not because of the longevity of his walk, although that was part of it. John Monger was beaten after a year as a believer. And he had joy. Why? Because his motivation was to serve God. And he had a devotion to Him. And finally, this question, how are we stewarding the Gospel? Are we diluting it like the, the Jesuits did? Are we hesitant to share it because it might offend somebody? You know, you've received, and Paul says it's more blessed to what? Give. There's nothing I enjoy better than sharing the Gospel with somebody. You never know how God's going to use it. So, um, Chris, glad you came today. Caleb, glad you came. Um, uh, Brad, close our time in prayer. Mm-mm. <clears throat>